Happy Easter. Hey, I'm Pastor Aaron. This is my 10th Easter leading this church. And man, what an awesome. Yeah, amen. What an awesome privilege to be able to be together as one church in one service on Easter Sunday. We haven't done this on an Easter together since 2017. And man, you're looking good this morning. Hey, if you are here as a guest today, it's because somebody obeyed the command of that song that they just sang. Go tell the world about Jesus. And that's what we intend to do today. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open it with me. We're going to go to a book in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. We've got a really big one behind me. We're going to put these verses on the screen so that you can see the Word of God today. As we go to 1 Corinthians, let me just give you a little context. Paul is writing, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in the first century, the Corinthian church, and he writes about all of these issues that are happening. I mean, he really covers the full gamut. He talks about issues like not putting your leaders up on a pedestal, like like. Don't, don't make it so much about the personality on the stage. He, he talks about issues like how to serve communion uh, together in the church. He, he talks about marriage and singleness in the church. He even gives a whole chapter to how Christians should deal with someone in the church that's openly living a life of sexual immorality. And so he goes through all kinds of different scenarios in 1 Corinthians. And then he gets to chapter 15, and it's like the Apostle Paul just kind of pauses, and he says, in the middle of, of all the messiness that is living a Christian life in the context of Christian community, and how many of you could testify and say, it does get messy sometimes, right? The church is messy sometimes. There's no perfect churches because there's no perfect people. And this church is no exemption. And I've even said to people, look, if you ever do find a perfect church, don't go. You'll mess it up. (laughs) Like, like, just let them have their thing, all right? Because you're not perfect either, right? And so Paul says in the middle of all of the mess that is living out our faith in the context of community, let's remember to keep the main thing the main thing, right? Like, the main thing is keeping the main thing, the main thing. And so here's what Paul says that is in in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is going to be the, the text for the message today, just the first six verses of this chapter. Paul says to them in verse 1, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your Stand. That's what I want to do today. I want to remind you of the gospel. Now, there is a chance that maybe somebody's here today and you, you've never heard the gospel before. You're, you're hearing it for the first time. And can I just say, if that's you, thank you. Because there is not a greater privilege for a Christian than to be able to share the good news, the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ with someone who has never heard it before. That's, that's the greatest honor. And so thank you for giving me that honor. And I, yeah, amen, I want you to know this, by the, by the end of this message, I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to respond in some tangible, practical step of faith to respond to this message and to begin a journey with Jesus, a walk of faith. Now, for most of us, it is, as Paul said, a reminder, 
For most of us, we're reminding ourselves of the gospel because we've heard it before. You know how the story ends. That's why you're already excited about it today. But how many of you think it's worth reminding? It's worth hearing it again. Amen? Amen. It's worth hearing it again. But can I just say to you, those of you that know the story, I want to give you an invitation today as well to begin again. And maybe you're here today and you know this story and maybe you've even at some point in your life made a decision to be a follower of Christ. But today, thank God for moments like Easter Sunday. You need a reset. You need an opportunity to start over. And can I just say to you, if that's you today, you're not alone. You are not alone. In fact, we only have four gospel writers that give us the Easter story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And even one of them had to begin again. Mark started out as a promising young man in the ministry. He was excited to go on a circuit of evangelism with the great apostle Paul. But after they got started, Mark quit. Mark went back home. In fact, Paul got so upset at him, he said, you know what, I'm never taking that guy with me again. And it wasn't until years later the apostle Paul wrote one of his letters and he said, hey, send Mark to me. Because Paul knew that now this is a faithful brother in the Lord. But Mark, he needed to have a a moment to, to be reminded of the gospel again. To come back to a place of faith again. And like Paul, I want to remind you today of the gospel. It's not a new gospel. No, No surprise ending today. We're not mixing it up or anything, you know. Same gospel. It's not a Pentecostal gospel. It's not a Methodist gospel. It's not a Mennonite gospel. How many of you know there's just one gospel? Yeah. Just one gospel. Not a contemporary gospel and a traditional gospel. Today, over two billion people have gathered to be reminded of this gospel. Welcome to the largest organization on the face of the planet, the Church of Jesus Christ. We've rallied on every continent and country on the earth to be reminded of this gospel. We gather in response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We gather in response to this gospel that Paul said, I came to preach to you. Why would we keep coming back to the same, same story over and over again? Well, the next verse tells us why. Look at it with me. He says in verse two, by this gospel, you're saved. That's why it matters so much. The Bible's very clear. You are saved when you put your faith in the, the gospel that is communicated in the word of God. Paul said it like this in Romans 1.16. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. In other words, to everybody. This is the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, it says this about the gospel. For it is by grace that you are saved. Through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. In other words, you're not saved because you do good deeds. You're not saved because you helped to feed those who are hungry. Though we appreciate it, there's no merit of salvation in it. You're not saved because you showed up for church on an Easter Sunday morning. You look good, but it won't get you in the kingdom. We are saved when we express our faith in the gospel. 
we're saved. And by the way, that's not a one-time intellectual decision. It's, a, it's an ongoing, abiding spiritual conviction. It's important that you understand that distinction. And, and that's why Paul elaborates in verse 2. Look at it again. He says, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. How in the world could believing in such good news be done in vain? It's done in vain if you just believe it for a moment. There's a, a mental assent to a, 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 an idea, but then you don't continue to believe in it. You don't hold firmly to that belief. He said, if you don't hold firmly to it, then then you've believed in vain. Now listen, understand, here's my conviction. I don't think that God is up in heaven right now with, with a giant eraser over the reservation book. And like every time you mess up, every time you say something you shouldn't say or do something you shouldn't do, that God's up there like taking your name out. Like, nope, cancel. Aren't you glad that God doesn't cancel people every time they blow it? Yeah. I don't believe that he's up there waiting for you to miss a step so that he can cut your name out of the Lamb's book of life. But I also don't believe that the Bible gives false warnings. I don't believe that the Holy Spirit inspired these writers to use scare tactics. What I'm saying is if the Bible warns us that there's the potential that we could believe the gospel in vain, then I think it matters that we pay attention to this gospel and how tightly we're holding firmly to it. Now listen, God is not asking for sinless perfection today. That's not possible. Not for any one of us. He's not asking for sinless perfection, but he is looking for a sinless direction. In other words, when you come to Christ, you just come as you are imperfect as you are, sinful as you are, but when you begin to believe this gospel and hold to this gospel, the gospel begins to do a work from the inside out of your life, and though you're never going to reach a sinless perfection, you will begin to walk in a sinless direction. In other words, if, if the compass needle of your life is not pointing in the direction of Christ, you need to reconsider how tightly you're holding firmly to the gospel. If at this point in the message you're wondering, how much can I get away with and still be good? You're probably pointing in the wrong direction with that question. <laughs> so Paul challenges us, as did Jesus, by the way. Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a scary thought. I'm not trying to scare you this morning, but let me just tell you plainly what the word of God says. Jesus himself said, only those who do the Father's will, those are the ones that will be with his Father in heaven. So I want you to consider the firmness of your grasp for a moment on the gospel. Look at verse three. Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, all the other stuff I've been teaching you about for the first 15 chapters of this letter, this is the main thing. This is the most important thing. This is the reason we come to church on Easter Sunday morning. He says, this is what I wanna communicate to you. Look at it with me. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 
He said, this is the main thing. Now, I know it's Easter Sunday, and, and we want to celebrate the resurrection and the empty tomb, and we've got all the reason in the world to do so, but here's what I've found to be true. The only way to truly appreciate and to really experience the joy of the empty tomb is to approach it by way of Friday's cruel cross and Saturday's long day of despair and shattered dreams. So we're gonna get to the empty tomb today, but, but can I take you for a few moments back to Friday? We're not gonna stay there long, but, but we need to understand that the, the resurrection parade, it begins its march down the Via Della Rosa, the road of suffering. We call it Good Friday because it's good for us, because of what Jesus accomplished for us, but it wasn't good for him. Friday was a day of torture and agony, and Jesus died a slow death. He was arrested late in the night, Thursday night. He was condemned to death by religious leaders. Mark describes that scene like this in Mark 14, 65. He says, then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, they struck him with their fist, and they said, prophesy. And the guards took him, and they beat him. By early Friday morning, they had bound Jesus. They bound his hands like a lamb being led to the slaughter. The Roman governor, Pilate, he couldn't find a reason to convict Jesus to death, so he tried to silence the bloodthirsty mob by having Jesus flogged. So with the Roman flagrum, he was, he was flogged 39 lashes across his back. The Bible says that when they brought him back from that experience, he was unrecognizable. His flesh, it hung like ribbons off of his back and off of his side. Then the whole company of soldiers took him into the praetorium. They began to mock him. They took a purple garment and they threw it over his open back. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they shoved it on his head. The Bible says they took a stick and they beat him over his head. And they, they, they bowed down in fake homage to him as, as a king. When they were done playing their games and mocking him and beating him, the Bible says they then ripped that garment off of his back. It had now congealed to his open wounds. They brought him back out before the people. Jesus was forced to carry his own cross down the Via Della Rosa outside of the city of Jerusalem and up to Golgotha, the hill of the skull. It's now 9 a.m. on Friday. Jesus is being lifted up on the cross, nails in his hands and in his feet. He would hang there in agony for six hours. Friday's been called a lot of things. It could be called cruel It's gory. We don't like to think about the details of the story. It's graphic. It's unjust. But can I tell you one thing that Friday can't be called? Unexpected. One of the most amazing things about the cross that Christ bore is the fact that he knew he was going to bear it. He was not at all surprised. That's why when Paul's writing about the most important thing, that thing that is of first importance, he says, remember this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. It, it happened according to the word. In other words, Jesus knew it had been foretold. All the way back in Genesis chapter three, the beginning of your Bible, when Eve and Adam had sinned in the garden and the Lord spoke to the serpent, 
And he said, there will be enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Jesus knew that was him, that he would be bruised, that he would be beaten, but that he would crush the head of the serpent through the cross. Jesus knew that Isaiah 53 verse 7 talked about him 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah prophesied that he would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And like a sheep before his shearers, he did not open his mouth. And so as Jesus stood trial, he didn't say a word. Jesus knew that Psalm 22, that was written a thousand years before he was born, he knew that song was written about him. It was written hundreds of years before crucifixion had even been invented as a means of punishment. And yet, prophetically, the psalmist wrote these words accurately describing crucifixion, specifically the crucifixion of Jesus. Words like, my bones are all out of joint. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. The psalmist said, they gather around me like dogs. They gamble and cast lots for my garments. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he even mustered up the strength in his body to say the first line of the song. Psalm 22, verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know if he didn't have the strength to sing the rest of the song or if maybe just the first line is all he needed to say to get that song in the minds of those religious leaders that were gathered at the foot of the cross. And they all began to think about these words. Jesus wanted to make sure that they knew that he was dying for their sins according to the scriptures. Why would he do it? Why why knowingly go to the cross? Jesus did it because he knew that the wages of sin is death and the price of redemption is death. Sin has to be paid for either on the cross or in hell. And for your sake and mine, he chose the cross. And Jesus knew, not only did he know that the penalty of sin was death and that it had to be paid to satisfy the wrath of God against mankind, he also knew your pain, not just the pain he would experience, he knew your pain. He knew what you would experience. This is what the Bible says about Jesus in Hebrews 2. He's called our high priest. It says, for he, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we do have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not Sin, Isaiah 53 says he was familiar with suffering. He was acquainted with our pain. Can I tell you today, I'm I'm not here to declare some some far off distant God that just sits uh, on a pillow of clouds surrounded by a bunch of fat chubby baby angels strumming their golden harps. Like that, that's not the God I'm telling you about today. I'm telling you about the God that stepped out of eternity. He stepped into time. He walked a mile and more in your shoes. Whatever feeling you felt of disappointment or heartache or despair or pain, he felt that. He carried that for you. If Friday says anything to us, it ought to say, Jesus understands my pain. That's what the cross says, that he he gets it. 
He knows what I'm feeling. He knows what I'm facing. So Paul says, this is the main thing. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance that Christ died for sins according to the scripture. And then in the next verse, it says that he was buried. That's the reality that Jesus' disciples woke up to on Easter Sunday. Jesus is buried. After three and a half years of following him, of, of, of preaching the gospel alongside of him, of seeing him do miracles, of building their hopes and their expectations, they woke up on Saturday to the reality that hope is in the grave. That our dreams are shattered, our expectations unmet. If you imagine that moment, I, I can't I can't believe that there's another day in the life of the disciples that was longer than that Saturday. To, to wake up defeated, deflated. To, to wake up with this sense that everything we thought God was doing in our life is over. And can I just say there's a lot of people that are living their whole life in Saturday. Living their life in this, this sense of, of Things are not what they're supposed to be. I mean, maybe you're a person that, that would say, I believe, or I did believe, rather, in, in the hope of the gospel. But today, there, there's this, this wrestling match in my soul. Like, I have my convictions and my belief and what the Bible says, but I also have my reality. And reality has caused my faith to crawl in a hole and die. That's what it looks like to live on Saturday. Maybe you feel that in your own life. Maybe that feeling of death describes, maybe it describes your marriage. There was a moment you were full of optimism. You stood at an altar before God, before a minister, before your friends and family, and you had all the hope in the world. I mean, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, till death do us part, but today feels more like death. Maybe it's, a hope that God was gonna make something happen for you. You began to believe him with confidence. You were convinced that the life that he had for you was better than the one you had for yourself, but things haven't played out the way you expected and you're stuck in Saturday's long day of despair. Imagine what it must have felt like to be the disciples. Numb is the word that comes to mind. Just shell-shocked. Post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't even, don't even know what to do because nothing speaks louder to unchangeable circumstances than a grave. <laughs> the grave says it's over like nothing else can say it. And the disciples woke up Saturday to that reality. Hope is dead. So they hid they locked themselves away. They couldn't fathom their next step. And, and maybe you're there. Maybe you've been there before. Can I encourage you with this thought? When you're wondering, what do I do next? I don't know where to turn. I don't know how to make sense of these things. The next move is not yours. The next move is not yours. The next solution is not up for you to come up with. That feeling of hopelessness, of having no answers, of being disappointed, of being at the point of despair. It's into this moment that, that Paul speaks. I want you to see it again. He says in verse three, for what I received, I pass on to you of first 
importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Church, that's why we come back to this story time and time again. That's, that's why we come back on Easter Sunday to look in, to gaze one more time at the empty tomb because when I don't know what to do, when I don't have a solution, when I don't know where to turn, Jesus makes the next move. Early on Sunday morning, the word says there was a violent earthquake and angels appeared and they rolled back the stone so that everyone could see that the tomb was empty and that Jesus is alive. But here's the better news. Jesus didn't just come and leave the tomb empty. He came to those who were empty. I mean, it would have been a miraculous story to just get up on Sunday morning and, and recognize his body's not there and, and a search party goes out and here we are 2,000 years later going, you know what? They never did find him. They never, they never found him. We're not really sure, but it was pretty awesome. That's not the story. That is not the story. And, and maybe you've even seen it played out that way. As if Jesus comes out of the tomb and then like cut scene, next scene, he's going up into heaven and everybody's like, there he goes. It didn't happen that way. Look at what Paul says next in 1 Corinthians. After it says he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, verse five says, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So when Paul wrote this letter that we have in our Bibles today, he wrote it close enough to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that most of the eyewitnesses were still living. This wasn't some, this wasn't some hearsay, some speculation. This wasn't something that people picked up off the front page of the tabloids. They were going, you were there, right? I was there, I was there too. Everybody saw Jesus. And Jesus made it a point to appear to them for the next 40 days. He showed himself before he ascended back up into heaven. The women were the first ones to the tomb. The women showed up on Sunday morning. They found the stone rolled away and the body of Jesus was missing. Suddenly, two angels appeared beside them, shining bright as lightning. Luke 24 records the story. It says, in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? Can we read verse 6 together out loud? Put that up on the screen. Verse 6. Come on, read it with me. He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you. See, he knew. While he was still with you in Galilee. He's risen. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And can I ask the same angelic question to you today? He's alive. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Stop looking for life in dead places. Stop looking for life in dead relationships, in dead pursuits. Only Jesus can show up in the long, despairing day of Saturday. Only Jesus can come out of an empty tomb and reveal himself to you and say, I am your resurrection. I am your life. He doesn't just empty the tomb. He comes to empty people. 
And that's what we've been praying that God would do on this Sunday. That God would show up in the Performing Arts Center, in your heart, in your mind, in whatever little seed of faith might exist on the inside of you, that God would reveal himself. That he would show up in the empty places. Sure, you're going to face the pain of Fridays. Pain in this life is unavoidable. Sure, you're going to have the long Saturdays of despair. You're going to experience heartache and heartbreak, and and things are not going to go the way you thought they would. That's not reason to discard your faith. That's not reason to walk away from Christ. It's reason enough to lean in and pray that one more time Jesus would step into the empty places, that he would come to you, that he would be your resurrection and your life. You see, the empty tomb tells us that Friday's pain isn't permanent. It tells us that Saturday's long day of despair is going to end with the dawn of resurrection life. In this life or the one to come, resurrection life is on the horizon. Because Jesus is alive. And in a moment, I want to give you an opportunity to just stretch your faith towards that gospel that I've reminded you of. To extend your faith towards Jesus, towards the invitation of the empty tomb. But here's what you need to know about the gospel before you can receive anything from it. You have to first acknowledge that you need it. See, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, For if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just and He will forgive us of our sins and He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins. It begins with us acknowledging. But let me tell you what the next verse says. Verse 10 says, If you claim that we have not sinned, We make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. In other words, what John was saying is everybody sins, everybody needs to confess. (laughs) Like, if we confess, he'll forgive. But if you say you don't need to confess and you don't need forgiveness, well, you made him out to be a liar. So whether you've never accepted Christ in your heart and and stepped into a, a place of faith in Jesus or or maybe you have, but you're like Mark, and you started out strong, but, but life happened, disappointments happened. And you need to step in again. I want to give you an opportunity to do that today before we end this service. I want to pray for you. I want to ask if you would, all over this room, could we just take a moment and just bow our heads before the Lord? Maybe you want to even close your eyes in this moment just to, to block out the fact that you're sitting in a room full of people. And in your heart, just get, just get alone with God in this moment. Just get alone with God in this moment. And I want to ask a very serious question, the most important question you'll ever be asked. Because as Paul said, this is of first importance. The question is this. What have you done with Jesus? What have you done with him? I mean, is, he just, is it just a... A story that we rehearse at Christmas time, the little babe in the manger, and at Easter, the empty tomb? Is he just a relic that hangs on your wall? 
But like a decoration on a necklace, is he, is he the Lord of your life? Is he your savior? Is he your hope? And if you, if you have to be honest today and you can't say that's who he is, then I want to invite you right now to make a declaration of faith. And it's just this simple. I want to invite you to say, Jesus, I give you my life. That's what it means to respond to the gospel. That's what it means to hold firmly to it. Friends, it's not about signing up to be a part of a church or taking a class. It's about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, with every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, I thank you right now that your presence is in this room. And I believe on this Easter Sunday morning that the dawn of hope is rising in our hearts. God, I believe that today there there are people that have struggled with pain, with disappointment, with uncertainty. They've experienced some Fridays in their life. Maybe they've been stuck in some long Saturdays. But today, on Easter Sunday morning, hope is rising. And the tomb is empty. And Jesus, I believe in this moment with all my heart, you want to step in to the empty places of our life and meet us where we are. If you're here today and you know that the Lord's speaking to you, he's calling you to respond to his invitation, to give him your life, to confess your sins to him and receive his grace by faith. If that's you today, with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just lift up a hand towards heaven? Just as a way of saying, Jesus, that's me. That's me. Come on, lift it up high before the Lord and say, Jesus, I need your grace today. Maybe even as you lift up your hand, come on, you want to say, Jesus, I give you my life. Would you join me right now? All those that are saved, those that are being saved, would you say it with me out loud? Jesus, I give you my life. Come on, one more time, church. Jesus, I give you my life. I want to ask you to look at me for a moment. Many hands just went up all over this room today. And the Bible says if one person, if one person comes into the kingdom, that there is rejoicing in heaven. There is rejoicing in heaven. So I want to ask you if maybe down here on the earth on Easter Sunday morning, if we could get just a little bit as excited as the angels get when somebody comes to Jesus. Come on. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me all over this room? I want to ask our prayer team to come and to find a place in the front. For those of you that are in the mezzanine, we've got some prayer team that's going to be available in front of those areas. Listen, let me tell you, friends, when you come to Jesus, you have to decide alone. Boy, my job would be a lot easier if I could just decide for you. You have to decide alone. But here's the good news. You don't have to come alone. Look around. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Men and women 
who have experienced Friday's pain, men and women and students who have been stuck in Saturday's long day of despair, and you are surrounded by a witness of people that have seen a risen Savior step into the empty places of their life. And so today, whether it was because you just raised a hand for salvation or maybe you just have a need in your life, maybe you feel like you've been stuck and you want somebody to pray with you, we're going to take the closing moments of this service and this worship team is going to declare again the living hope that we have in Jesus. And can I encourage you to make this a full participation moment? If you're here today and you say, I I just prayed that prayer. I raised my hand and said, Jesus, I give you my life. I want to invite you to step out from where you are and to find one of these men or women to pray with you. We, we want to just seal the deal on what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. We want to encourage you. If you're here today and you say, I, I'm struggling in an area of my life. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your emotions or your children. Whatever it might be. As we declare Jesus is the living hope on this resurrection morning, I want to invite you to just step out from where you are. Let one of these men or women pray for you. This may be the most significant moment of the whole day, friends. There's something powerful that happens when our faith connects. So I'm going to pray for you right now, and I'm going to ask you to just begin to move. Step out from where you are. And find someone to pray for you. Father, thank you so much for this moment that we can declare Jesus Christ is our living hope. God, today I thank you that we can declare today that because death could not stop Jesus, there is no sickness or disease that has power over him today. Thank you, God, that we can declare because the grave could not lock him up, there's no chain of addiction that can keep us bound. In Jesus' name, I pray that you roll stones away over hearts and minds that have been darkened by despair and anxiety and fear. God, I pray that right now you unlock the shackles of addiction off of people's lives. God, we ask right now in the matchless name of Jesus that you would restore marriages, that God, you would mend broken relationships, that prodigal sons and daughters would stop running from the Father and turn back to the Father's house today. God, in this moment, we declare over every mountain of opposition, be it physical or spiritual or social, we declare Jesus is our living hope.
come on lift your voice to him all over this room declare victory in your life Father, we declare today that death is defeated. You know, church, the Bible calls us to more than just followers. The Bible calls us to be priests in our own home. I'm looking out. I see so many men. Thank you, men, for leading your families. Thank you for being here today. Man, I'm so thankful. Listen, I, I, don't, I don't say that to discredit any, any other person. I just say it to, to acknowledge the fact that, that you have a spiritual authority today. And so I'm going to ask them to sing this song one more time. And, and, and fathers, mothers, grandparents, I, I want to just encourage you to just declare this. over. This is not just something we come and do for, for an hour on Sunday. This victory is the victory that overcomes the world. This victory, this message of the empty tomb, we carry this out with us, church. We carry it out with us. So we're going to just sing this one more time. And as we do, I want to just encourage you to take the authority that Jesus gave you as his sons and daughters and declare this over your family. Declare this over your loved ones that we have victory. We have a living hope in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Come on, we're going to sing that one more time. We're going to lift our